Dispatch, this is 3-1. Show me a couple Romeo at the home of the regiment. 3-1, this is Dispatch. Papa Romeo College. Welcome to the Papa Romeo Podcast, the only podcast by MPs for MPs with an inside look you can only get at the base of the flagpole. I'm your host, Captain Steve Wynn, joined by the creator and producer, Captain Laura Meads. On this podcast, we're going to uncover the stories that make up our regiment with leadership lessons, wisdom, and helpful tips from MPs across the Corps. Papa Romeo begins right now. episode of Papa Romeo. Before we begin, I would like to take the opportunity to honor the memory of one of the heroes of our regiment. Sergeant Gene Stevens, the last remaining member of the original MP Corps branch during World War II, passed away on 18 August 2018 at the age of 100. Many of us were fortunate to hear his stories in recent years at MP events throughout the regiment, and we know his memory will live on through all of us. Today we have Colonel Gilmartin, the Assistant Commandant for the Military Police Corps Regiment and former commander of the 16th MP Brigade. I hope you enjoy our talk with Colonel Gilmartin. All right, so good afternoon uh, on, on Papa Romeo. Today we have uh, Colonel Gil Martin, who is the Assistant Commandant of the MP Corps. And um, uh, glad to have her here for an interview for our next Papa Romeo podcast. So we like to start off with an icebreaker. And for today, um, if you could go back in time and observe any moment in history, what would it be and why? Okay, that's an interesting question. You know, I think probably the intent is to think of some big historical event. Um, the historical event, I think, that shaped my generation in the Army probably was the fall of the Berlin Wall because that really changed the world order. So I think that would be neat to see it. Uh, I was in Europe just immediately afterward. Um, but to see that and then kind of understand what shaped then the lack of kind of a bipolar world, which turned into... 9-11 turned into us going into Afghanistan turned into you know the Arab Spring so that would be cool to see but then I also think you know if we had a, a time machine uh, I would probably just as easily want to go back and relive some of those perfect days you know and is the perfect day me and a couple of my LT buddies sharing coffee and having a lot of good laughs in the morning over at the the German cantina you know that's a perfect day or you know, maybe a perfect day was uh, a picnic lunch that uh, several of us had with one of our Afghan partners in his orchard, just sitting on a rug on the ground, eating green plums and kebab and just having good laughs, you know. So I think if the time machine were invented, I might want to go back to some of those perfect days. That sounds great. Um, especially those, some of those moments that, uh, that we, I feel like we only get uh, in the Army experience. Uh, like you're talking about with the, you know, the the picnic in, in the man's orchard. That's not something that, you know, typically, obviously a picnic, yes, you can experience that, but not really in that dynamic. Yeah, it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Yes, ma'am. And, and even when, you know, a mission or a particular assignment gets difficult, I always try to stop and say, hey, at some point I'll miss this. Mm -hmm. So you always have to remember that you'll miss, you know, some aspect of it, whether it's the people or whether it's the environment or whether it's just the learning you're going to do, so. 
Yes, ma'am. So a lot of people, um, a lot of successful people have kind of what they feel like is a set morning routine. Do you have that? Yeah, I'm almost embarrassed. I wouldn't want to share all my morning routine because I am a vivid dreamer. So about half of my morning is to try to like get out of that world and get back into the real world. So, um, but uh, you know, I think the one thing I do in the morning that a lot of people don't is I always listen to local radio and uh, it aggravates some of my subordinates because I usually know what's going on in terms of either local crime, local events, local uh, disruptions, traffic, who the key leaders are. So I encourage my, especially my MP leaders, to listen to the local radio because you're gonna learn a lot that's helpful to your day-to-day uh, -day life. And uh, then I'll also watch the national news. So those two things together is always a pretty important part of my morning routine. So you've had, uh, ma'am, you've had a pretty impressive career so far. Platoon leader in Germany, company commander in Korea, uh, multiple deployments, instructing at West Point, 16th MP Brigade commander, and a PhD from Stanford uh, through the Advanced Civil Schooling with the Army. The list goes on. What are a few of these assignments where you learned the most and grew both as a leader and as an individual? Mm. Well, and this may be where I'd ask for some following questions, because really every assignment I've learned something very important. Um, overall, I think the difference maybe that I've had from other people, I hear colleagues sometimes differentiate between staff jobs and then leadership jobs. And they're always wistful, like, oh, I can't wait till my next command, or, you know, I wish I could have been a platoon leader longer, what have you. Um, I view every job as a leadership job. So, you know, when I'm in staff, that staff section is my leadership experience. If I'm even a, a staff officer of one, Everybody who's sitting around me, that's my leadership experience. And so I don't see these discrete breakpoints in my Army career. So uh, that, I think, has made me a little bit different from some of my colleagues who almost consider staff time like paying their dues to get to the next leadership job. So I try to enjoy every job. I try to really dig in and get the most out of every job. And, uh, and so each one has had you know different life lessons that I've learned. So I'll kind of stop at that and see whether you had a follow-on question. Um, well, are there any of um, are there any life lessons that are like the most salient or the ones that stand out the most? Maybe just one or two. Okay. Well, uh, you know, starting early because probably some of your listeners are younger leaders. What I learned as a lieutenant from uh, my battalion commander, Colonel Lois Beard, is she always pushed all her leaders to work one or two ranks up. We were a separate battalion under a theater army. So it was a lieutenant colonel-led organization falling under a general officer organization. Uh, so most of our counterparts, when you were primary staff in that battalion, your counterpart at 21st then TACOM would have been a full bird colonel. It didn't matter to her. She would put us on the road to go link up with our counterpart to get something accomplished. And uh, so I learned from her, hey, you know, rank doesn't matter, just get the job done. And it was pretty empowering as a young person to do that. Uh, when we were deploying to uh, the Balkans, Colonel Beard wanted the staff to you know, do everything we could to get them positioned for success. Theater hadn't deployed, USER hadn't deployed. So we were really leading all of Europe in getting into Hungary. And uh, it, was, it was somewhat comical, also empowering, also a little bit scary. Um, as the S1, I just created everybody's orders. The orders didn't come from high, I just typed them out. I got a fun site, 
you know, they didn't quite look like orders, so I found some kind of a date stamp, and I just started stamping the hell out of them. <laughs> but Colonel Beard was that kind of leader. I mean, we, we contracted buses, and they deployed on buses just to get into theater while the tactical vehicles were being railroaded. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of that little engine that could that I learned in Europe, is, is your rank doesn't determine your influence, I would say. Okay. Um, speaking of your PhD from Standard, mm -hmm. your thesis on right-wing domestic terrorism in the United States required inter interviews with individuals ranging from law enforcement, human rights leaders, civilian militia leaders, and political advocates, uh, activists. Who were some of the most interesting individuals or topics that you discussed that stood out mm -hmm. for that research? Yeah, so I, I've, I've talked to people who, on both sides of that issue, people who consider themselves militia leaders, um, radio hosts who are, you know, on the right wing spectrum who, who uh, uh, would do conservative radio, but more conservative than what you would hear, you know, on a mainstream uh, channel. Uh, I've talked to civil rights folks who are more on the left, police officers who are, you know, in the middle of these kind of areas where there might be activity. And I think what I learned over time is that uh, I think that we put too much on ideology and ideas and we don't look hard enough to find those people that nobody can get along with. By example, some uh, law enforcement officials, some activists will try to infiltrate right-wing groups or infiltrate left-wing groups, but typically it's going to be your, your right-wing groups. When they infiltrate these groups, you know, they're really confirming a conspiracy. And a lot of times it's counterproductive because, you know, America is built on groups. It's built on civic activity. So, you know, my, my, my assessment, if you can get 20 or 30 people who can agree to go to a basement, bring some jello salads, bring some, you know, ham, and just talk about anti-governmental ideas, that's not the people we should be worried about. We need to be worried about the people that that group kicked out. Okay. And so if you're against any group in America just based on ideology, you're going to miss engaging them and figuring out who is even too violent or too crazy for them to deal with. Okay. So it creates kind of a false uh, tension between folks who actually all believe in democratic ideas. So I would say don't focus on ideology. Instead, focus on the laws. You know, who... It's, it's not illegal in our country to have ideas about uh, the UN or ideas about gun control or what have you, but it is illegal to threaten people with violence or to plot to blow something up. And so I think we should become a lot more ideology neutral and then focus on those people who don't follow the rules, who are trying to commit crimes. Okay. And unfortunately, you know, we don't. And you see that even with other, you could change the topic, change it from right-wing militia to change it to gun rights, or you could change it to... Uh, anti-police violence or you know pick a topic whenever we get down that ideology rat hole it's not productive America is built to have diverse ideas but what we're not built to have is people who don't believe in the laws or who you know uh, threaten violence against other people so I think that's what I learned the most okay and, and I, I don't think we've learned that lesson I mean I think we're still there mm -hmm. is that we focus too much on ideas but ideas really won't make people violent uh, people who commit crimes usually have other issues, other predilections, so. Towards the violence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, switching track, have you ever had any experiences or struggles as a female throughout your career that you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, you know, I, I guess I guess it's been pros and cons, so I wouldn't say it's struggles. I'd say probably struggles and advantages. 
And I think that one of the, the things we haven't focused on as much is the advantages of having a diverse force with women. You know, even now when we're talking about uh, integrated units and gender integration, the discussion is all on kind of sameness and baselining in terms of physicality, which is a part of the discussion. But we've kind of missed some of the real talent of diversity and having, you know, different people with different backgrounds and, and, and different skills. So, uh, you know, when I, I joined the Army, it was still, things were still kind of a, a different world as far as guys and girls. Like, um, uh, you know, when I was in high school, we had uh, speech and debate, which you wouldn't even think has any physical component at all. There were certain events that were divided by men and women. You don't see that anymore. But it used to be there was women's extemporaneous speaking and men's extemporaneous speaking. Well, speaking okay. is speaking. That right. was the, the world I came from. Um, we had in my junior high school a competition called Silence is Golden. So in the junior high, they expended budget to buy little stickers that had a little girl holding up a finger to her lips, you know, making kind of that shush noise. Uh, and the girls were supposed to go a whole day without talking. Okay, so that was the world that I came into the Army in. Okay. Uh, it was a little bit of a, a different world. Um, so it, it, was, it was interesting to go to West Point because when I was at West Point, and, and you're familiar with the environment, um, most of our instructors had been cadets at the time where women had just joined. So we almost had a wrinkle in time. So the instructors were still talking about women joining the academy even though it was 13 years in. Okay. Which was kind of interesting. Uh, so that was a little bit of a struggle. Um, at West Point at the time there wasn't mentorship I think by a lot of the women officers. Some of them would, but I think some of them who had come into the academy at that time were hesitant to look like they were preferring women. So it, you had to hunt out mentors. Uh, that doesn't mean that there weren't some. You know, I had one TAC officer who really tried to be totally fair. She would engage the ladies. I had an English professor who would engage the ladies. But surprisingly, there were women instructors, women TACs, who tried to keep the women a little bit at arm's distance. I think it was just so that they wouldn't be showing preferential treatment. But that, that's a difficult environment to be in. Um, you know, but that said, as soon as I joined the MP Corps, all kind of women role models. Uh, so, so that is a point of pride, I think, for our branch. I would agree. Um, I had two women battalion commanders, you know, this is in the 90s. Had a colonel brigade commander um, in about 2010 when we recalled Colonel Mary Meyer onto active duty. Uh, of course, now working for General Martin. So that's four women leaders in 24 years. That's one woman every six years. So that's probably far exceeding, you know, the rate of most other branches. So, you know, I think we've been really lucky. But, um, you know, as far as struggles, I, you know, I can think back. I had, um, I had two uh, experiences when I was uh, a new captain, late first lieutenant, where more senior male officers would uh, proposition me and it would have violated the rules either because one was married and one was cadre when I was a student. You know, and I, I dealt with it myself, um, knowing that these two were pretty well respected in the Corps. But, you know, that, that type of behavior was a little bit selfish on their part, and it devalued me as an officer. Because, you know, if, at the time I maybe thought that they 
liked working with me for what I contributed to the organization. But, um, you know, struggles, probably just cultural struggles, trying to get people to, um, you know, focus on the mission instead of focusing on differences that don't matter. But, I, you know, I think as a woman, I've had advantages um, in terms of being deployed. I, I, and I think a lot of our lady officers in Afghanistan had a lot of influence over the Afghans just because they were very impressed by our dedication. And so that was an advantage to, uh, you know, to be able to show them that America was sending its daughters to this country, you know. And so I think they were even more motivated to try to show their bravery. And they would want to rush ahead of us to any scene. And they would want to make sure that they were doing right by the Americans because we had so many ladies in our structure. So I think there's a lot of advantages. I, I think that women uh, have been taught, you know, this is a generalization, but I think women are taught to read people, uh, which gives an advantage in terms of police intel, uh, defensive mindset. You know, we grow up kind of scanning the environment for threats. You know, we're not the type that are going to be wandering around in a parking lot after dark without kind of thinking protection. Right. So I think it gives us an advantage as MPs. It gives us an advantage with the protection warfighting function. So I think there's a lot of skills that women bring to the fight and it has nothing to do with men and women doing the exact same number of push-ups. Right. It has a lot to do with, you know, the way we're, we're raised. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, can you tell us about a time in your career in which you um, made a mistake and, and maybe thought it was over, it was a really big mistake, uh, but someone stepped in and looked out for you, a leader or a battle buddy, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe the characteristics of that leader and yeah. what you learned from it? Okay. Well, you know, I, I can't say there's been, like, a mistake that you know maybe I need it to be safe from but I would say there's been mentors who kind of look out for me career-wise because there's been points in time maybe that they've had to you know make sure that I got the kind of report card that might be important for the next selection or for CGSC selection uh, there have been people looking out for me I think as I go back and forth from like ACS back into operational force um, but that said, you know, I never had a, uh, I would say, a, a big godfather in the MP Corps who was always trying to drag me along. You know, I, I think over time I just had to, had to um, continually uh, show folks that I was able to join the team new. Uh, but I, I did have commanders, I think, who were always looking out for me in terms of talent management. And I would say those commanders also were very good at looking out for the whole team. So I, I think that they were taking care of each of us as, as we needed it to make sure that we were getting ready for that next milestone, whether it was a board or selection or something like that. But um, it, it, that's a very important skill for a leader is to always be worrying about your subordinates. And I think I had a lot of commanders who did that. They, they worried and tried to make sure we were positioned for success. Yeah. Um, but you know, to your question, uh, the, the bigger question, I think something we don't do a good job of is teaching people how to get in trouble or teaching leaders how to deal with a subordinate who's in trouble. And uh, what I've tried to do every time one of my subordinates has been in serious trouble, whether it's a, a DUI or an investigation or whatever, is to find them that next day and just look them in the eyes. You know, and even as a commander where you're kind of bound by USMJ not to give them the opportunity to talk, you know, against themselves. It's still important for that soldier to know that you care about them as a human being. 
because as soon as they go to work the very next day, they're thinking the absolute worst. They're thinking everybody thinks that they're a, a dirt bag. And so to find that person, look them in the eye and say, hey, look, you're going to be dealing with a lot in the upcoming months, but I believe in you as a person and we care about you as a person and we're going to be here for you. You know, and then just make sure, hey, do they have an attorney? You know, are they eating? Are they sleeping? You know, so just to look them eye to eye and care for them that way, I think it's super important because um, some of our, our soldiers, even our officers, our non-commissioned officers, they're going to think the worst. They're going to think their life is over and that they could all survive no matter how bad the trouble is. They can survive it. They might not, their career might not survive it, but they can survive it. They can become productive members of society. And I think that's important for us to be able to look them in the eye and let them know that. Right. Yeah. So um, we'd like to talk about memories now, because um, I think that that's a, a really important uh, aspect of, of, of being a soldier. Mm -hmm. I think that there's just so many memories that we get um, and, and, and usually it's not until, you know, our, our vets are, are really old that we take the time to sit down and listen to them um, or even think about them for ourselves. Um, so starting off, what's the, one of the funniest things you've experienced in the Army? Well, being an MP, you're always going to get, like, I don't know if you'd say funny, but you're always going to get surreal. So that is the branch to be in if you'd like to be able to chuckle every once in a while. But um, when you... Uh, you had kind of sent me a teaser about that, and I was I was jotting down some notes. I think a recent one that every MP that was at Bragg was just kind of asking themselves what has just gone on is we had a um, a soldier who decided he wanted to be in the special forces. I'm sorry, correction, not a soldier, a civilian. Okay. No no military background at all except for his family members. Okay. Decided he was going to be special forces. So he comes on post using an ID card from a relative, goes to an SF unit and signs in. And the SF unit accepted this young man as a soldier, and then this young man just became a joiner. He was showing up to motor stables, he was going to the unit PT events, and he was such a joiner, they made him the barracks NCO. And I could share this story because it's been in open source media now. But okay. They made him the barracks NCO, gave him keys to the entire barracks, and oh. wouldn't you know, he didn't do a half bad job. So uh, he got caught because uh, one of the other soldiers, a real SF soldier, was uh, pulled over for DUI. So this young man, who was quote unquote the barracks NCO, was dispatched by a member of the chain of command to go pick up the other DUI. Well, this guy was drunk himself, drives up on this DUI drunk, and then we discover he's an imposter. But you've got to wow. laugh about that. And, you know, on some level, I kind of wanted that guy to be in the Army because he was such a That's a lot of gumption. Contributor, yes. you know. I mean, you don't know many Special Forces soldiers who really like maintenance, and he was going to motor stables. So, <laughs> I mean, you, you got to say that's pretty funny. That is. Um, another funny uh, memory I have is um, when we were in Afghanistan, some of the Taliban was trying to assassinate the governor, so they managed to get onto the governor's compound. Pretty sophisticated plot. So they, they got on the installation and they were um, killing security forces trying to get to the governor. Uh, when I heard this was happening, I went out with my detail to the closest police station, linked up with the police commander there, and to get a view of the governor's compound, and also we knew there were security forces already making their way inside. We had climbed to the roof of that police station 
on this very rickety ladder and it wasn't 10 minutes that behind us coming up this rickety ladder was one of the members of the police station with the tray, teapot, and glass teacups. And nice. You know, that, that is not in our culture, but for the Afghans, you know, even during the middle of an assassination plot, you still got to take your time for tea. Right. So, you know, a little surreal. That's, that's, that's definitely the too. Afghan culture. So, um, What would you say is the best bonding experience you've had with uh, fellow MPs? Yeah, I, I think it was that. I think it was being in Kandahar City, 2011-12. Uh, uh, we had a lot of mission. We had terrain, uh, four of the sub-districts of the city, and then later on it expanded up to the um, kind of the less developed subdivisions that were in the north part of the city, uh, which was a transient area that uh, would be used as you were coming into Kandahar City and out. So it was a little bit more of a dangerous spot. but. We, uh, we didn't have a lot of MPs to do this mission, so we had to really bond a lot with our Afghan police, the Afghan fire department, and then the civil uh, folks who belong to the government. And I think it was definitely a bonding experience. So everybody I see from that time, I mean, we still share a lot of good memories because it was hard work, but I think that we accomplished a lot while we we're there. And what would you say is the worst that you've had in the Army? Um, worst time in the Army. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I always lose sleep if I've dropped a ball, you know, if I've been kind of the weak link on the team or, or forgotten something. But, you know, th there's always, like, really bad days. I think um, I had a soldier who had committed suicide when I was in brigade command. Uh, the police were about to notify the father, and they asked me whether I would rather make notification. So, you know, if it was a choice of the police telling him right away or him hearing it from somebody who knew his son, I did it, you know, even though the Army casualty system eventually would have caught up. Uh, and that's hard to tell a father, you know, that his son has committed suicide. That was really hard. Um, also difficult, our FOB was attacked when we were in Afghanistan. And, you know, just to see how uh, soldiers reacted was both inspiring and also a little scary. <laughs> Uh, we had, you know, support soldiers who probably hadn't expected that they would maybe need to fight for their lives, uh, you know, and, and you had to do leadership on the spot. You know, I, I was there with a, a big cluster of, um, I think it was intelligence soldiers, most of them, and telling them to chamber around because, you know, we could already hear gunfire, you know, and I wanted them to be ready if, if somebody had run up on them. So that was, that was probably, you know, adrenaline-producing event. But... Um, you know, the, the, that's kind of a sample of some of the bad days. You know, and each bad day has goodness too. You know, get a little bit of yin and yang in every army day. Okay, um, how close have you come to getting out of the army and who or what kept you in? Yeah, so I have never yet researched, you know, I've never had the paperwork done. I've never, you know, started floating resumes. So that's a good thing. Um, I, I think there's points in time where it's been good to know that I didn't have to stay in, you know, so like when you hit 20, that's good to know, hey, you know, if, if I wanted to get out, I would have that option. But I think typically, I, you know, the goods have outweighed the bads, so I could always see the bad days for what they are. Um, and I do tell a lot of officers, a lot of, of young leaders, not to judge the Army based on one unit and, and some of our soldiers, you know, so I, I had a fantastic non-commissioned officer who worked with us at Fort Bragg, he had had a pretty traumatic training incident. Um, and, you know, he was on the fence. Should he stay in? Should he go? 
And Star Major and I talked to him about, you know, different opportunities, you know, the fact that we saw a lot of talent in him. He's in now, he's really excelling, he has a good ASI, uh, doing a lot of contributions in terms of policing. So I think it's important for us to make sure that nobody judges the Army based on one unit or one, ex one experience or, you know, maybe an accident or an incident or an injury, you know, to try to give them that broader perspective. You know, and that goes back to talent management. You know, if you have somebody that you think can contribute, even if they've got that injury, see if you can find a position where, you know, gives them a chance to recover. You know, and, and that's part of readiness. You know, readiness isn't taking everybody who's injured and getting them out of the Army. Readiness is trying to figure out how to keep those good people, get them back to healthy. You know, I, I think it's important. To, to make sure that nobody's getting out of the army just because they've had you know a couple bad data points. Right. Yeah. I, I fortunately, Knockwood have not had that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, what is one piece of advice that you would give to a younger you? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Wouldn't that be good if we could? I, I have a, a friend, Captain Julie Left. She's out now, but Julie always said, "Why, why can't I ever learn from somebody else's bad experience?" You know, and, and that's true. We all have to just learn stuff on our own. Um, I, I think if I could tell my younger self something, I mean, I might just tell them, hey, there's never a good time. So you've got to make your life plan, set some boundaries, you know, try to create some balance if you can. But given the times, given the information I had, given the mission demands, I probably at every point was probably making the best decision I could with the information I had. So, mm -hmm. you know. You live life forward, and then you've always got that perfect clarity when you look backwards. But right. um, you know, I, I think uh, I think the most important thing is just to be you. Do you? I, I tried to do that, but that, that's what I would continue to tell myself: is not to worry too much what other officers were doing, and just you know try to do the best job I could at each juncture. I, I always encourage people. There's a movie. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Sliding Doors. And it's a 1990s movie, and it's a uh, woman who gets fired from her job, and she's catching the train to go home, and she either is able to reach through those doors that close and catch that train, or she just misses it. And then the story breaks in two. And in one of the paths, her life is getting progressively worse, and the other path, her life seems to be getting progressively better. But there are twists and turns in the movie. And so what you never know is even if you're going down kind of a difficult path, you never know what the alternative would be. Right. And you never know what goodness might be at the end of it. So, you know, even though we tend to think that we've got, you know, we, we overweight the, the good stuff that could have happened, you might have averted disaster just for the fact that maybe, you know, you made a mistake and then you were a little bit more cautious in the future. So, you know, I think as far as think about life, you've got to think about, you know, not just the path that you're on, but alternative paths as well. As well. Uh, yes, ma'am. So, mm -hmm. is there anything else that you would like to leave with our listeners? Um, I think I think I would encourage every listener to worry and try try to put most of your effort downward. I see some colleagues who worry about their own career, managing their career, their report card, and they even worry about hire. You know, what's, what's the higher headquarters doing? You know, what's my boss doing? What's the XO doing? What's the staff doing? You really can't fix hire. I mean, you can make suggestions. You can, you know, interact with your higher headquarters. You're not going to fix your higher headquarters. 
but you've got a lot of control to take care of your team, to take care of your soldiers. So, you know, for any listener who's worried about the fact that they didn't get an award, I would ask them, hey, what awards are you preparing right now for your soldiers? You know, for anybody who thinks that they got a poorly written evaluation, hey, how much time are you putting into writing your NCOERs and the OERs for your soldiers? You know, for anybody who's kind of thought, hey, they do a lot of work and never get recognized, are you get recognition for those unsung heroes in your formation, like the mechanics or the clerks or the, you know, the paralegals or whatever? So I, I would tell everybody, you know, do about 80% of your worrying downward and even channel that. So if you're ever frustrated, just channel it back down to your people. So, you know, just vow that whatever you're frustrated about isn't going to happen to them because you have a whole lot of control over your team. You don't have much control over what happens to you and hire everyone else's team. Yeah, so that would be my recommendation to everybody. But I see people just, you know, tilting at windmills and, and getting frustrated because of what's happening to them. Well, you can't control that. So control what you can control. That would be kind of a big piece of advice. Uber advice from me to the listeners. Sounds good. Yeah. All right, well, thank you very much. Um, for taking your time today to talk to us and, and share these stories. Really appreciate it. Well, good. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Pop Romeo with Colonel Gil Martin. We would like to thank her for speaking with us and sharing her memories today. We also extend a thank you to the MPRA and freemusicarchive.org. Until next time, assist, protect, defend, Pop Romeo, out. <laughs>